Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Romans. It's going to be chapter 14, 1 to chapter 15, verse 13. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your own eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, 
we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as, you're, as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing hymns to your name. Again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Ray. Hey, can we give a hand to Ray? That was a, that was a, a long passage. You may be wondering, why, why such a long passage? Well, a couple reasons. One is that this passage does have, certainly has a lot of nuggets in it, but, but really the whole thing is, is really kind of one continuous unit where there's a, just an issue Paul wants to address, which is addressed uh, as, a, as really just one point, which he deals with in that section. Some of the nuggets that pop up there are themes that he's, visit, he's already unpacked earlier on in the letter. So that's one of the reasons why I did that. Also because, uh, honestly, I want to finish Romans soon. Uh, we've, we've been in Romans almost as long as the city of Rome itself has been around. Not, not quite that long, but I, I do want to, to finish this series because uh, I want to start a new series in the weeks leading up to Easter. Six weeks leading up to Easter, I'm going to start a, a, a new series uh, coinciding with what has traditionally been called the, seri- the, the season of Lent, and this is going to be a series called Thirsty, and that's going to begin in just a few weeks, and it's called Thirsty, and the, the basic thesis of this series is that we go through life and we are thirsty, but we are always trying to drink from wells that will not satisfy, and the passage that kind of inspired this this series is a passage that I studied and, and meditated on while I was away for a week, and it's, it's of course, the, the time when Jesus meets with the woman at the well, and, and he says, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of this well, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but everyone who drinks of the water I give him will never thirst again. And what he's pointing out is this reality that we go through life constantly trying to quench our thirst with something, but he's the only one that will satisfy. We'll see in, in that passage, actually, this woman, for her, it's relationships, and she's a woman that's gone from man to man to man to man, and, and really what he's getting at in a, in a kind way is saying, is saying, you're trying to satisfy your soul through wells that cannot satisfy you. I alone am the one who can satisfy. So that's the series which we're going to begin here in a few weeks. So I wanted to try to finish up Romans before we get there. Now, this series that we've been doing, this is a series called Good News, right? This has been the, 
the series that we've been in now for almost eight months, and this is the central theme of the book of Romans, the book of Romans being a letter that was written by a man named Paul in about the year 57 AD, writing to the early Christian communities in Rome, and the central idea is that there is good news, and there is good news that trumps all bad news, that no matter what bad news you might come to hear today or tomorrow, there is news that will trump that bad news. Uh, you know, most of us, we we're almost want to turn off the TV because we don't like seeing bad news. I happen to be a glutton for punishment. I'm actually listening to a podcast. It's called The End of the World Podcast. And it's, it's not a religious podcast. It's a, it's a podcast in which in each episode... They unpack different ways in which the human race could end up getting wiped out. And so, for example, one is that uh, a comet uh, could come, like, like what killed the dinosaurs could come. And, and it explains in great de- detail exactly what would happen if a comet slammed into the earth and wiped everybody out. Uh, of course, global warming, that's one. They kind of explain what would happen if, if global warming started to really really kick in and, and what that would do. Uh, of course, there's there's alien life and that might come and attack us. There's, there's mathematicians, philosophers that have theorized that if there is life out there by now, they would be so powerful that we wouldn't stand a chance. And so maybe if they know that we're here, they're just going to come take care of us before we start to advance. Uh, that was one way we could be wiped out. Uh, we, that one of them was artificial intelligence, right? Uh, that we, we're going to create computers that before we know it are going to get smarter than us and then take over the world and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, so I'm kind of a glutton for punishment. It's this podcast about the end of the world. But as I listen to this, and in all seriousness, as I listen to it, I'm able to listen to it within the context of the good news. That whatever anybody may say about the end of the world, what the Scriptures remind us and what Paul reminds us in the book of Romans is that there is a God who created everything. He created the heavens and the earth. He created the universe. He created everything. And he is good and he loves us. And he is for us no matter what comes, that there is good news that trumps whatever bad news might come. That good news is revealed to us in the person of Jesus, in the person of Jesus. God himself came for us, came to us in in this sort of insignificance of really who we are when you look at the universe and you just, but God loves us so much that he came for us, he became a man, he became a human being and he died for us because he loves us and he rose from the grave demonstrating his sovereignty over everything. That's the good news. That whatever bad news may come into your life, there is good news that trumps all bad news. And so that, that's really what, over the last eight months, we've been unpacking. And then in recent weeks, we've been following Paul's lead. And towards the end of the letter, he begins to ask this question. He says, well, in light of the good news, in light of knowing this, how do we live? How do Christians live? What does it look like to live in light of this, of this good news? And what he begins to unpack in this passage, really, if I want to sum it up this way, is, is this, and once we unpack this, you'll see how this comes out of it. But what emerges from this passage is that the Christian life is all about cultivating relationships. It's all about cultivating relationships. It's all about cultivating relationships 
vertically and horizontally, cultivating a relationship with God and cultivating relationships with one another. And what emerges from this is that what this is about is cultivating relationships. It's not about following rules. It's not about rules. It's not about the the fundamental question that the Christian asks is not what is the right rule to follow. And we unpacked this last week as well, and we're going to see it here in a slightly different context, that it's not, the, the goal is not I'm here to follow rules. What is the right rule to follow here or there? It's about cultivating relationships. And it begins with cultivating our relationship with God. It's about that relationship. It's not about rules. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting is that though it's not about rules, rules are actually required to cultivate that relationship. It's not about rules, but rules are required to cultivate that relationship. In fact, another way of putting it is that a religious rule, by definition, rightly understood, if you understand it in light of the gospel, then a religious rule, rightly understood, is a practice that you engage in in order to cultivate your relationship with God, whatever practice that might be. And, of course, you find throughout the history of of Christianity, uh, there have been these different sets of rules. So, for example, this guy named Benedict in the 7th century, he wrote out what he called what are now known as the Benedictine rule. And it's a series of rules, of practices which you engage in in order to cultivate that relationship with God. And, and people would come and join his movement, and they would follow these rules to cultivate that relationship with God. Another one, Augustine, known for the Augustinian rule, a series of, of rules that people would come and they would follow in order to cultivate their relationship with God. Rules are required in order to cultivate a relationship with God. I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but, but we follow rules here. We do. We follow rules every Sunday. In fact, we even have a rule book. I don't know if you guys know this or not. It's a rule book. We actually print it out each week right here. This is the rule book. Song, welcome, greeting, song, 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 scripture, message. This is a rule. This is setting out the practices that we are engaging in in order to cultivate our relationship with God. In fact, part of my job, one of my main responsibilities is to set rules. We have a community group ministry, which we encourage you to all get involved in. That's a rule which we recommend you become a part of uh, in order to cultivate your relationship with God. And then within that community group, if you go to a community group, your community group leader sets more rules. That's what it actually means to facilitate a community group is to set the rules that, well, this is what we're going to do here, and this is what we're going to do here, and we're going to follow those rules with the goal of cultivating our relationship with God. And here, here's what we need to realize, though, is that rules are necessary for cultivating any relationship, not just with God. If you want to cultivate a relationship with your family, how many of us, you know, you, you kind of go through this point, you're like, our family, we're not connecting well, family night, we got to get family night going. Wednesday nights, we're going to get together and play games. What have you just done? You set a rule. That's a rule, a practice which you're looking to engage in in order to cultivate relationships with the people in your family. Date night, right? I'm gonna, we're going to have a date night. Our marriage is falling apart, right? We got we to gotta do something about this to cultivate our relationship. Date night, you know, we're going to get wings. That's going to be our thing. What is that? That's a rule. 
It's a rule that you have in order to cultivate that relationship. And so it's necessary with every relationship, it's necessary in your relationship with God to have rules. Look, it's necessary, even if you're one of those people who says, I don't like church. I don't like church. It's all about rules, right? Church is all about rules, 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 rules. I just cultivate, I just, it's just between me and God's personal relationship with God. I'm not about rules. Now, here's what's funny about it is you may not realize it, but you end up following rules anyway. Like, I, I don't go to church with all its rules. I just get up in the morning, and I read my Bible, and then I pray, and I, and, uh, and I journal, and I have this creek that I always go to on Wednesdays. I go to this creek, and I walk along, and I, and I pray, and I journal, and I meditate. I'm not into rules, you see. No, those are rules that you've set to help cultivate your relationship with God. Now, what emerges in this text, here's what emerges in this text. There's no one set way. There's no one set of practices that you must engage in in order to cultivate the relationship with Christ. Now, of course, as Christians, we're worshiping Christ. That's that's the God we're seeking to worship. That's who we're after. Now, within that understanding that I'm here to worship Christ, there's no set rules that must be followed in order to cultivate that relationship with God. And that's what essentially emerges in this passage. Verses 5 and 6 in chapter 13, excuse me, chapter 14. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. What he's getting at here is, of course, the context that he's dealing with was uh, the Christian communities in Rome were comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews, they had sets of rules that, that they liked to follow rooted in their traditions in terms of how to cultivate their relationship with God. And The Gentiles didn't have this, and so there's sort of this conflict. And what Paul wants to say is, look, not one of you is right. It's it's not, there's no one set, okay, this is, this, if, for for the Jews, of course, this idea of eating meat, what this was was about, of course, is that uh, they could only eat meat that was prepared in the correct manner. Uh, certain regulations about purity, and it was all about purity. It was designed to help them remember the importance of spiritual maturity, or, or excuse me, spiritual purity, so they would only eat meat that was ceremonially pure, prepared in a way that was ceremonially pure, and that would help remind them of the need to be spiritually pure. And so they, they wouldn't eat meat, but the Gentiles are like, well, we don't really, it doesn't matter how the meat's made, well, we, we, can eat, we can eat the meat. And, and so there's this tension there. And Paul just wants them to say, look, In cultivating your relationship with God, there isn't one set way to do it. There's not a set way to do music. You can do music with drums and guitars. You can do music with the organ. You can do songs that have lots of words. You can do songs where it repeats words. They both have positives and negatives about them. Not one is right and the other one is wrong. Uh, you can do songs that, that build over the course of the song. That's really popular today, songs that build. You start like this, and it builds, 
and it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. And it's great. I love that. I love that. I love songs that build, start out slow, and then by the end, you're, you know, that's great. It's a great way to do it. It's not the only way to do it. They don't all have to do that. It can be different. The music, there isn't a set way to do that. What we, what, when we come to church, what we wear to church, whether you wear jeans or whether you wear a, a suit, the, the thing itself is not what matters, we see, we'll see here, right? It's a matter of the heart. You see, one person, for example, might come to church wearing a suit and a tie, and the reason that they do that is because they see it as a way of showing respect and honor to God. They're, they're coming to the house of God to worship, and, and they want to come, and they want even the way they dress, they want to do so in such a manner that shows respect and honor for God. And that's great. If somebody else, they might have a totally different perspective. Their perspective might be, you know, the suit and the tie just makes me think of corporate America. Suit and the tie just makes me think like I'm trying to, you know, work a deal. It's all about, you know, trying to impress people. And like, I don't want to wear that at church. You know, I don't want to, I, I would feel like I'm trying to impress people if I wore a suit and a tie. And I, I come with jeans because it reminds me that I can come before God in brokenness. That I can come before God just as I am. Paul say, neither one of these is, is right or wrong. There's different ways, different rules you can follow in order to cultivate your relationship with God. It talks about one individual finds one day to be more sacred than the other. This, of course, the, the Jews would follow the, the traditional feasts within the Jewish calendar and, and use those as a way to cultivate their relationship with God. Within the Christian tradition over the last 2,000 years, there's developed different ways of doing that as well. Of course, the liturgical calendar is precisely a, a calendar that has emerged over the centuries, which is drawn out of the, the, the life of Jesus. And some people follow it and some people don't. Personally, I've actually become more drawn to it in recent years. I actually uh, appreciate it. That's why I start to incorporate things like Lent a little bit more into our service. Truth is, most Christians follow it to some degree, if you celebrate Christmas and you celebrate Easter, you actually are celebrating the liturgical calendar. You're using that as a way of, of, of uh, practices that you use in order to cultivate your relationship with God. And so, you know, I, I've started to incorporate some of that more. Um, we, we have, again, coming up during with this series that we're going to do called Thirsty. It'll be during this season of Lent, which is a season which is traditionally used to encourage us to, to really reflect a little bit on where our hearts are and to identify what those idols are in our lives that maybe are pulling us away from God. It's a time when maybe we say, you know what, I'm going to spend more time with God over the next six weeks. I'm going to fast from things that maybe are beginning to take up more of my time or beginning to take up more of my attention, more of my heart, and, and I'm going to do that over the next six weeks. And, and so I encourage you to do that. But, but here's the thing, if you don't do it, it's fine. You're not less spiritual because you don't engage in these particular, these particular practices. There's no set way to do it. There's no set way to do your devotional practices. Some people read the Bible in a year. Some people, they, they study the Scriptures every day for five minutes. Some people study the Scriptures 
30 minutes every three days. Some people, they're, they're, some people like to be in a nice, quiet place. Some people like to go to the mall where it's a little bit busier. Some people like to take a while. There, there's, no set way, there's no set way to do this. Uh, you know, recently I went on this silent retreat. I went away, and for an entire week, I basically didn't talk to anybody. And I went away, and I just prayed, and I meditated, and I read my Bible, and I didn't speak with anybody. Now, some of you might be thinking, wow, that, you're, you're so holy. <laughs> you're so spiritual. I think I'm just an introvert. I think I'm an introvert. I, I, this doesn't, I mean, here's, let me put it a different way. I have mentors of mine, people whom I respect so much, and, and, and they are much farther along in terms of their own personal holiness. And the truth is that for them, a week of silence would be a living hell. They would hate it. I'm not more mature because I went away for a week and did that. It's, that these pra- it's not one set of practices doesn't, isn't more right, isn't more holy. Different ways of cultivating our relationship with God. There, there's no right way to pray. And it's not one person, you know, some people, they're very intense when they pray. It's a bit more contemplative. I have a friend who's very intense when he prays, great friend of mine, Ray, and we, we kind of, we joke around about when he prays, we're afraid he's going to take off. Uh, he just, he just, he prays and he just, he just gets going, man, and you're just like, oh, I hope he doesn't hit his head on the ceiling. You're just waiting for him to like levitate up into the air because he's just, just really intense. And it's awesome, but I know other people, that's not how they pray. They're a little bit more contemplative. Some of it's just personality. Some of it's seasons in our life. No, there, there, isn't, there isn't one way that is the right way over and against another way. You know, related to this, this might sound like it's not related at all, but related to this also, there's no one way to raise your children. There isn't, this is important to know. You're like, wait a minute, Ken, what does that have to do with, with this? Do you realize that the goal for, for Christians as parents I would suggest that the primary goal of raising your children from a Christian perspective, this is the hope and the goal, is the same as church, actually. It's to foster a love for God. That's what you want more than anything, is is to help help your children foster and cultivate a deep love for God, which is the same thing what we're trying to do in church. When you raise your children, it's not primarily about behavior. It's not primarily about that. Of course, that plays a part of it as well. No, but the bigger picture is what you're after is a love for God. Just like in church, my goal is not primarily to get you to, to obey God. My, my, my primary objective is to help cultivate a love for God in you. Now, if that love for God grows, you will obey. Same thing with raising our children. What we're, we're hoping to do is to cultivate that love for God. We're, we're not just trying to raise children who, who can win sword drills, you know, and they're like, where's Leviticus? <laughs> they got to find it, right? Like, you know? I mean, that's, that's not what we're after. Now, that's helpful. Knowing the Bible, knowing the Scriptures is a vital part of cultivating that relationship with God, but that's what we're after. Is the, is the heart. I, I love, let me just read for you Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and here this is the prayer known as the Shema. And this is the, it's just the central prayer in the Hebrew Scriptures. 
This is what it says here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then in verse 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Listen to that. How key that is. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. The idea is, is not just not that you know the commands, but that you love the commands and you love the God behind the commands. It's cultivating this love for God. And then here, here's why I read this. It goes on here. Impress them on your children. And I love that word impress. That's not just educate. That means impress on their heart, help to cultivate a heart that loves God and loves the things of God. Impress them on your children. Then, listen, it goes on. It says this. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, here's the mistake some of us can make. We get out our... Pen and paper, you're like, okay, tie them as symbols in your hands. Um, write them on your door frames, put them on your gates. Honey, we live in an apartment. We need to move somewhere where we have a gate. We don't even have a gate. How are we going to do this? Right? This is not setting out specific rules on how to cultivate that in your family. Actually, it's just a poetic way of saying in everything that you do. Everything that you do should be thought through and, and, and considered in light of how is this going to help or hinder my child from growing in their love for God. And the reality is it's going to be different for different kids. It's going to be different just like different people need different religious practices to help cultivate their own heart the way we raise our children is going to look different depending on who they are. So here, here's the thing. Parents, we should set rules. And rules we need to understand in a much bigger context, right, as we've already seen. Rules aren't just do this, don't do this. We're talking about creating an entire atmosphere, an entire culture within your home which helps to cultivate and foster that love for God, and that's going to differ. That's going to vary from child to child and from home to home. Really, the, the idea here is it's not about doing the right rules. It's doing whatever cultivates love for God. Whatever it is. Again, that's what we find in verses 5 and 6. And then, and then the point is do whatever cultivates that love for God, and if there's anything that hinders or pulls you away from God, then don't do that. Well, that's what emerges here in verses uh, 22, not in Deuteronomy, back here in, in Romans, verses 22 says, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, right? It's talking about eating meat in this context, but we'll see the bigger implication here. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. What this is getting at is that if you engage in anything where you can tell 
that, hey, this is, you know, this is, is, your heart is not getting in line with God when you do this. This is not something that is fostering a love for him. It's actually, for, in your own heart, you feel like it's dishonoring to him, but you still do it, then you shouldn't do it. Whatever that happens, whatever that happens to be. Uh, let, me, let me kind of give you an example. This, this is true. I think we realize this in any relationship. What, what it's saying is that if you, if you do something that in your heart feels like sin, then it is sin, then you're sinning against God. That's what this is saying. If in your heart it feels like sin and you do it, then it's sin against God. But this is true in any relationship, right? Let, let, me, let me put it this way. So in my family, uh, we love to eat bacon. Okay, we'll stick with the meat theme. We're going to use it a little bit differently than they're using it here. But we, we, we love to eat bacon. Uh, we, in fact, the problem with, with bacon in our house is there's just never enough, right? So we have to ration it out. So I want you to imagine here for a moment that we cook bacon. We sit down one morning, and let's imagine that my wife, she notices there is one piece of bacon left. She's like, oh, that's, that's Kevin's bacon. But I, I want it. I'm eating it. I'm eating it. I don't, he's not going to I'm eating that bacon. So she, she eats the bacon. And then she's, she's feeling kind of bad about it. But she notices that I don't say anything. She's like, wow, that's really, I'm really surprised. And then finally, like the guilt, you know, is just kind of building up inside of her. She's like, honey, are you mad that I ate that bacon? And I'm like, oh, no, that was your bacon. I, I already had, I had my four pieces. That was your fourth one. She's like, oh, good. Right? So, so look, she didn't sin against me. But she thought she did. And she still ate it. That kind of hurts, right? You see, if you, if you think what you're doing is dishonoring and you still do it, right? See, that's what this is getting at. And so any practice that you engage in, it, any practice that you engage in, if it doesn't feel like it's honoring to God, then you shouldn't do it. If, if, if it feels like it's pulling you away from God, you shouldn't do it. And the point is, this is true with every aspect of life. Part of what emerges from this, you see, is that it's not so much a matter of, well, what are the rules to follow? Because when you understand what this is about, every aspect of life is a rule that is either pulling you away from God or it's pulling you towards God. In this sense, it's like everything is sacred because it's either pulling you towards God or it's pulling you away from God. Everything has that possibility. There's a, I, I've referenced this book before. There's this, this book by James K.A. Smith. Actually, he writes about it in a number of his works, and he talks about what he calls secular liturgies. And liturgy is just another fancy word for religious rule. That's what a liturgy is. It's a religious rule that you engage in. And what he points out is that there are secular liturgies. That, In other words, as you go through life, there are liturgies that you participate in that pull you away from God. And so you're always in the context, you're always worshiping something. You're always being drawn towards worshiping God or you're being drawn to worship something else. You see, you're always in church. It's just a question of what God are you worshiping in that context. And so what, the, what this is getting at is that you've, you've got to identify what are those things that are pulling you away from God or pulling you towards God. And here's the thing, it can change. It can vary from person to person, and it can vary from time to time. Let's put it this way. When you watch television, you should ask yourself this question. Whatever you're watching, is this, is this fostering 
a love for God, and, and TV certainly can do that because you can, you can watch TV and you're like, this is, this is a gift from God. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a TV show and just being like, I, I'm grateful for God for just how creative this is. And, and so it, it, there's a thankfulness towards God. But we also all know, like you know, you're watching that TV show, and you're like, this is pulling my heart away from God. And so we've got to be asking those kinds of questions. Something like alcohol is a perfect example of this as well. Right? One person is drinking alcohol, and they're able to drink it and say, thank you, God. I thank the Lord for this. This is a good thing that he's given. And then for others and at other times, that alcohol becomes the God. It's no longer something that you're, you're thankful for. It's almost like that's what your God is. It's pulling you away from God and becoming your God. The very same thing. All kinds of things to do with music. I'll give you an example of my own life with music. I'm a huge fan of the Dave Matthews Band. I have been for, well, since I've been around, about 25 years. But I've noticed that there are, there are times I'll listen to the Dave Matthews Band, and sometimes I'll be in seasons where I'm like, praise God, this, is, this music, the artistry of it, I mean, these guys are just ridiculous musicians, and I, and I listen to it, and I'm like, God, you have created a world that, where such creativity and such beauty emerges. I praise you, God. But then there are other times I'm listening to the same band, and to be honest with you, they, Dave Matthews is he's not likely to come preach here for me on, on, on fill the pulpit for me, right? He's, he comes from a very different worldview, and there are times when I'll listen to the Dave Matthews band, and I'm like, you know what, I'm not really sure this is helping me. I think this might be pulling me, this might be pulling me away. Honestly, the same is true with Christian, ra- Christian radio. There are times I'll listen to Christian radio, and I'm like, hands are up. Praise Jesus. And other times I'm like, gosh, every song sounds the same. This is just making me sick and I have to turn it off. See, it's not about is this the right rule, is this the wrong rule. It's what, what is this doing in my heart? Is it cultivating a relationship with God? It's, it's not about the, it's, not, it's about cultivating that relationship. It's not about simply is this the right or the wrong rule. Now, what happens What happens when a person cultivates a love for God? What happens when our hearts really are drawn towards God, our love for God grows? And and here's what emerges, and this is what has emerged throughout this section of the book of Romans and, and going back in the last couple of chapters, that as our love for God grows, our love for others grows. As our hearts are drawn to God, we begin to love others. In fact, listen to this, the primary way in which we show God that we love him is through loving others. This is so important to remember. Listen, religious practices, coming to church, reading your Bible, that is not the primary way you show love for God. In fact, it's almost the the opposite. I always say this, we come to church Certainly, we don't come to church to get God to love us. The cross reminds us we don't have to do anything to get him to love us. We don't really even, well, we do. We come to church to show God that we love him. But you know what I would say primarily we do? We come to church to get us to love God. We come to church to cultivate a love for God that then spills out in the way we love others. Let me put it this way. If you come to church and all that happens is you just love church, you're like, oh my gosh, I love church. 
I got to get church. I need more church in my life. And you're just going church, 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 church. But your love for others isn't growing, then church is completely wasting your time. Because it's designed to cultivate a love for God, which leads to a love for other people. The way you can tell that you're really growing in love for God is that it spills out into your love for other people. The more our hearts are cultivated with love for God, the more we, we, we love others. Uh, again, um, the primary way in which we show God that we love him is through loving others. We see this at the end of the Gospel of John when, Peter, when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? I've shared this with you before. Peter, do you love me? He's like, yeah, Lord, I love you. And Jesus is like, Peter, do you love me? You know, yeah, I love you. Peter, do you love me? And he's like, yeah, I love you. And then what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say to Peter, then sing me a song. Right? You love me? Sing me a song. Now, I'm sure Jesus would probably appreciate Peter singing him a song. He does. Now, what does he say? Feed my sheep. He's saying it spills out. You love me. You love others. That's what happens when love for God is cultivated. It leads to a love for others. The vertical relationship, cultivating that relationship, leads to the horizontal relationship. And obviously what that means then, the more your love for God grows, the love for, your love for others grows. This is why in the previous passage, Paul is talking about loving others as yourself. You love your neighbor as yourself. You're now able to care for others because you are secure in God. When you're secure in God, that frees you to love others and to love others as you would want to be Love. That's why in the passage that immediately precedes this is when he talks about following the, he says, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not, all of these things, he says, he says that can be summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself. And what enables you to love your neighbor as yourself is that you are completely secure in your relationship with God. And then that spills out into your love for others. Now, here's, here's where this all comes together in this passage, right? Here's what's ironic about all of this is the point that Paul wants to make, and, and throughout the last couple of chapters, he's unpacked different ways in which we demonstrate love for others. In this one, what he's getting at is, as your love for God grows, here's what's going to happen. You're going to become a whole lot more flexible in what kind of religious practices you need to be involved in. In other words, you're going to show love to your fellow church members by by, well, okay, if, if that helps you to worship, I'm with you. I'm not going to fight you on that. The more your love for God grows, actually, the less necessary it is for you to follow whatever specific religious rule it is that you use to cultivate your love for God. And so he's saying when, when your love for people grows, then you're flexible, and that's who, who the strong are in this passage. He talks about the strong and the weak. And just to put it very simply, the strong are those who, they're flexible in how they do church. And so they're willing to accommodate those who they aren't very flexible. Like, no, this is how you got to do church. This is how you got to do religion. This is how you got to do it. And the strong are like, well, no, you don't really have to do it that way. But we love you. And so we will, we will accommodate that, right? The weak in this passage are those who are insisting it's got to be like this. It's got to be like this. It's got to be like this. And Paul is exhorting strong, right? He's saying, really what he's saying, look, because you love them, just go along with it. You know, I want to, as I was studying this passage, I've been thinking a lot about 
my ministry here at our church. And how incredibly grateful I am for how strong the people in this church who were here when I came were when we came. Because they demonstrated exactly what this is about. Those of you, if you're here and, and you were here when I first came here, I want to thank you because you've demonstrated what it is to be strong. When Laura and I came here, we made a lot of changes in how the service is done. We went from singing out of hymns to singing out of a hymnal with a piano and organ. Actually, we didn't even have the organ at that point, but it was just traditional music. And we made a switch to a band with drums and electric guitars and contemporary music. We introduced the community group ministry, which was something that was very different than this church had had before. And the folks in this church, they went along with it. I mean, let, let me be honest with you. For those of you who maybe are newer, just honestly, if you'd walked in this church when you first came here and we were just singing hymns out of the hymnal with an organ, would you have stayed? You see, <laughs> let me put, the, put it on the other way. The folks who were here, many of the folks that were here when I came, I know they would rather we do it that way. They would much rather. That's, that's what they grew That's what they love, the, the hymnals and, and singing their old hymns. And that's the way they would do it if it was just up to them. But they demonstrated what it means to be strong. That, hey, this isn't about us. And if accommodating where people are in our culture today will help to cultivate their relationship with God, then we're in. That's what we're for. What they came to realize is that, that mission is what drives the religious practices that we ought to be looking to engage in. That's exactly what's going on here in the early church. Because, because uh, and Paul, I think, actually sort of gives a subtle rebuke. He does it very subtly to the weak in this, in this context here. Because the weak in this passage are the Jewish Christians who won't give up their Jewish ways of doing things. And he very subtly rebukes them. Because you notice in this passage, he actually tells, really he's telling the Gentiles, hey, look, accommodate where they are. So he's actually telling them to accommodate the weak. But then I think he subtly rebukes by the way this passage ends. And the whole end of this section ends by him talking about reaching the Gentiles. That our mission is to reach the Gentiles. You, you notice this here in, in verses uh, uh, 9 through 13. It actually goes even farther than that. It says, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. And then he goes on and he quotes from the Old Testament this passage about reaching the Gentiles. It's sort of this subtle way of saying, okay, look, I know that this is really hard for you to adjust. I know this is really hard for you to, to change your religious practices. And so I'm encouraging the others to accommodate you. But in the long run, this has got to change. It's a subtle rebuke. It's a way of saying, listen, what are we about? If it's just about me and my relationship with God, then there's something, there's something, uh, something false about that, what is going on there. If we aren't willing to make those changes in order to accommodate those around us, we have to wonder, are those practices that we're engaging in actually cultivating a love for God anyway?
What is it that enables us to be so flexible? What is it that enables us to put the preferences of others ahead of our own? Paul, as he always does, he brings it back to Christ because this is exactly what Jesus did for all of us. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. We who are strong ought to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should build should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And then in verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you. The heart of the Christian faith is that we have a God who has sought to accommodate us, to meet us exactly where we are. And the more that we come to experience the love of that God, it frees us to do the same for one another. Will you pray with me? Dear God, I I come before you and I praise you. I praise you for this church. I praise you for the people in this church who time and time again have said, "This this isn't just about me. We want to be a church where those on the outside can come and can find God, can connect with the God who loves them and gave himself for them. God, I thank you for this church and the people that have done that over the years, and I pray that we would continue to follow that example. God, I pray we would just be kind to one another. We would be accepting of one another with where we are. God, may we demonstrate exactly what it is that you did for us in the way we relate to one another. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.